Thank you very much, ladies. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, sort of. I know that in evangelical circles, Lent is a bit of an anomaly. It's, some churches observe it every year, and others never acknowledge it at all. I've spoken to a few people, and I know that in this church, it's been one of those things that some years we observe and some years we don't. But I think that it's important that we acknowledge it this season. I was mentioning to someone this week that for all the attention that Christmas gets, the pinnacle of the Christian calendar is actually Easter, or it should be. And I've always found that without Lent, Easter kind of sneaks up on me. It catches me by surprise, and I feel unprepared. So I want to make sure that we're preparing ourselves for what should be the monumental celebration that is Easter. But Lent is important for another reason. It's not just about preparation. You've heard me talk before about how in evangelical circles we don't do lament well. And it's true, but partly the reason that we don't do lament well is because we don't do somber and reflective well either. Being introspective and meditative is not something that comes naturally to most evangelicals, but it's an incredibly important part of our faith journey. And then, I'm also keenly aware that many of us, well, the last thing many of us need after the year that has been, is more heaviness. Lent, by its very design, is heavy. And most years, I would be inclined to steer into that skid, to embrace the heaviness. But I want to be sensitive to this year that has been, because I know how many of us are feeling. So all of that is to say that this will be a very different kind of sermon this morning, and certainly a very different kind of Lent series. In a year of weirdness, I figure let's embrace more weird. I've mentioned before that sometimes in the days leading up to Sunday morning, God makes clear that the sermon I've prepared is not the right one. It happens occasionally. This was one of those weeks. And so right off the top, I have to start by apologizing to someone. Working with me every day is not an easy thing. Uh, Alicia makes it look easy, but I assure you that it is not. I am difficult to work with, and this message is proof of that, because I told Alicia earlier this week, that I'd be doing a series on Lent and asked her to come up with a graphic and, and put the stuff online that we needed. And she asked me if there was a theme or something unifying to it. And I said, no, that's fine. It's nothing specific. Just call it Lent and we'll just number them. And then as I was researching and writing and started plotting things out, uh, a theme did start to emerge. And so I, and I thought it was a good one. And so I sheepishly went into her office and said I was making some changes and said, Here's what we're going to change, and I wanted to present the story of Lent through animals. Each week we would focus on a different animal and what it reveals about Jesus. And she very graciously made the changes that I needed. And then, as sometimes happens, I've had many conversations this week that made it clear that I needed to pivot this morning and do something a little bit different. And so, yet again, I'm pulling a fast one, and Alicia hasn't been warned about this at all, but all that prep she did for this week was in vain because I'm not going to be talking about a donkey, which she so 
spent lots of time trying to find a picture of a donkey that wasn't ridiculous. We're going to save that for next week, and we'll get there, but I'm sorry, Alicia, please forgive me. We will, we will get there. It won't be totally in vain. We, I want to do this, this reveal of Jesus through the animals, but in my conversations this week, it has become very clear that before we can do that, we need to take a step back, and we need to talk about Lent itself. Rather than talking about any particular aspect of Lent, we need to spend some time discussing what Lent is and how we mark Lent in our lives, whether we call it that or not. It seems to me that we have a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about this season. It's become clear that we need to spend some time discussing it. So, this morning is going to be a quick Lent 101. I think that'll be beneficial, and then we're going to discuss the overall central theme, and then next week we'll start in with the animals. You can have your, your teaser that we will be discussing a donkey and, how it, and what a donkey reveals about Christ. So let that be your, your teaser to come back next week. But let's discuss Lent. The first thing to know about Lent is that it is not found anywhere in the Bible. It's a tradition that grew over time and was inspired by Jesus' 40 days spent in the desert. But you won't find the term Lent in the Bible. You won't even find the practice of it anywhere. The second thing to know is that while today is the first Sunday of Lent, and I, I've had some conversations with people this week who, who think that Lent starts today, it does not. It started on Wednesday with something we call Ash Wednesday. We didn't mark Ash Wednesday this year in our church for a variety of reasons, but we may do that in future years. Now, if you are good at math and you're paying attention, you may, realize, you may have already realized something, and that is that if this tradition was inspired by Jesus' 40 days in the desert and Lent began on Wednesday, that means that Lent lasts 46 days. So why is that? Well. The idea behind Lent is that it's meant to be a time of repentance and meditation to prepare for Easter, and somewhere along the way, Christians decided that we were going to give ourselves Sundays off. There are some reasons for that, but we won't get into them this morning other than to say the six Sundays of Lent, in the, in the traditional sense of observing it, don't count as days of Lent. The other six days of the week do. So we end up with either 40 or 46 days. And that's what we find ourselves in now. Now, if you ask most people what Lent means, most evangelicals will tell you that it is a Catholic tradition and that it means you give something up, that you forego something. Easter's coming, so I won't drink alcohol or eat sugar or watch Netflix for six weeks. That's what it's become. And I don't want to discourage any of that, but I think the most important part is the why. And this tends to be the thing that I think we, uh, we, we misunderstand. Because beyond proving self-discipline, foregoing something that you enjoy is fairly pointless in and of itself. Self-discipline is a good thing, and if you need that to improve your self-discipline, great. But the act of foregoing something you enjoy does not in and of itself mean sacrifice. And Lent means sacrifice. The sacrifice is always in service of something else. And so if we reduce Lent down to this idea of simply giving up something we enjoy, we forego, we forget 
what it is that it's in sacrifice of. We have to identify that. The idea behind sacrificing something for Lent is actually that we replace it with something else. And this tends to be where most evangelicals, their knowledge of Lent begins and ends. We give something up and we don't talk about the other portion. We sacrifice sugar. The idea is not just to give it up. The idea is that we sacrifice sugar so that every time we want sweets, we're reminded of the period that we're in. We give up Netflix and instead we use those extra hours in our day for prayer and focusing on our spiritual lives. Lent is actually less about what we forego than what we add. In the year that, that in this year that has been, the trend among Christians this year is to say, instead of giving something up for Lent, I'm going to add something. There are many Christians, I'm seeing this all over the place. People are saying, instead of, of foregoing something, I'm going to add something. It's been a difficult time, so people are saying, I'd rather try and do something else. I know someone, a friend of mine, who is praying for a stranger in person each day. Others are adding more devotional time or one-on-one -on -one time with their kids. And all those things are wonderful. The part that bugs me is that a lot of the people who are doing that are acting like this is a novel idea. They're acting like adding something in for Lent is something new when it's not. It's quite ancient. That has always been the intention of Lent. You forego something in order to have time and space to add something. It's not... Lent is not about simply not indulging in things we enjoy. It's not about saying, I won't eat meat for 40 days. It's about the symbol behind it, the motivation behind it. We remove something to add something. Now, as, as someone who grew up in a Roman Catholic country, Lent has always been a big deal. But until about a decade ago, I always found it very gimmicky. And maybe you do too, that's, that's okay. This observing it in the traditional way isn't for everyone. And there is no requirement that you observe, trend, uh, that you observe Lent forgive me, in the traditional way. But just because you decide, you do or do decide to forego the traditional observance of Lent in the way it's traditionally done, doesn't mean that you are off the hook for preparing for Easter. And this is ultimately what Lent comes back to. It is a time of preparation for Easter. That's the real meaning of Lent. It's a time to take stock of our lives and surrender our innermost self to God. To reflect on our year and our life and repent of the things that we have been holding on to. Lent is about having the strength to let go. And when we understand it in that light, it's easy to draw a line to how we got to our modern-day traditions of observing Lent. But they aren't required in order for us to allow Lent to do its thing. There are thousands of ways to mark Lent. And if you're looking for more ideas, please come and see me. I'd love to be a resource to you. I could talk about this for hours. But the central purpose, that's what we need to focus on this morning, and this is where I was mistaken in my original uh, take on my sermon this morning. We need to focus on that central theme for a minute. As I've mentioned, all the traditions that have evolved over the years 
are in service of preparation. Sometimes God makes certain things painfully apparent to me, and it still takes me a long time to clue in to what he's trying to tell me, and that's how I ended up this morning preaching a different sermon than I was planning. Because over and over again this week, my conversations turned to two themes. And I've had these conversations with many of you, and so many of you will, will know this. They've turned to Lent and what it is, and they've turned to confession. And the two are two sides to the same coin. Lent is a time of confession. And again, I'm talking about Lent, which is uncomfortable or unknown to many evangelicals. And if that's true, the notion of confession is incredibly foreign to most evangelicals. It is not something we are good at practicing, even though that one is directly found in Scripture and required of us. I'm ashamed to admit, dare I say, confess, how long it took me to realize what God was telling me, what he was smacking me in the face with. But preparing oneself to be ready for Easter cannot happen without something that tends to make us uncomfortable. Lent and confession are synonymous. But as evangelicals, particularly in North America, we tend to avoid confession. We don't like to embrace the darkness in our lives. We ignore Lenten confession not because we don't believe in admitting our sins. Asking for forgiveness is something that's been drilled into all of us, most, of, most evangelicals, for most of our lives. It's about putting one's faith in Jesus Christ. But for too many of us, this is a one-time event at conversion, rather than something that we continually practice. Some people... Some evangelicals may confess in their private prayers, sometimes. But the corporate practice of confession is often dismissed as a, as a ritual, or too Catholic. Or it's unnecessary because God forgave all my sins, past, present, and future on the cross. That's certainly very true. But I'm here to tell you that the, that, that idea of confession is simply mistaken. It's wrong because it confuses confession as something we do for God's sake. Instead of the practice commanded of us by God for our own sake. It misses the formative power of confession to shape us into more humble, self-aware, and empathetic people. This North American evangelical aversion to confession is more obvious to me because of my background. And if I'm being honest, we come by it honestly. We come by it honestly because we have spent decades trying to balance truth with positivity, and that impulse can be good. A mentor of mine once warned me against focusing on sin or confession or any negative topics. And when I reminded him that the Bible is full of thou shalt not commandments, he advised me to preach positive instead. And again, I'm, this can be a good inclination. What he meant was that you invert the command against adultery into a message about the beauty of monogamy. Flip warnings about greed into the goodness of generosity. Avoid anything about judgment altogether. And I don't want to knock that. Sometimes that's what we need. But it is important that we... 
that we remember that our fixation on positivity over penance, penitence can be malforming. That sometimes we have to name the bad things. This goes back to a sermon I preached several months ago on lament, if, many, if you were here and heard that. In North America, we are so obsessed with being happy that we would rather fake it than allow ourselves to feel somber. And again, I, I know that this has been a heavy year, and many of us are craving levity. We're craving positivity. But we won't find it by ignoring the darkness in our own lives. Lent is a time for taking stock and confessing our sins so we can be free of them. And confession is both individual and corporate. Without rituals and disciplines like corporate confession and Lent, then there's little within popular evangelicanism to restrain the triumphalism that's become so prevalent. We overshadow Christ with our own ideas of magnanimity. Corporate confession. If we're bad at confession, and I think it's demonstrably true that we are, then corporate confession is virtually non-existent. How often do we come together as a church body and confess that we, collectively, have been wrong and ask for forgiveness? Why is it that most of us probably can't ever recall doing that? Confession should be personal, and it should be collective. Because when self-examination as an individual or a group isn't valued and cultivated, it's too easy to see the Christian faith as a battle between external agents of good and evil, rather than the internal struggle of our own sin. Without self-awareness, and again, I'm talking individually and collectively here, without self-awareness, the great threat to the faith is always from those on the outside. It's never the existence of transgressions of our own making from the inside. I think this explains, at least in part, why so many of us appear so susceptible to things like conspiracy theories and that sort of thing. This victim mentality that we display it's present in the world, and we, as Christians, are very guilty of presenting this us-versus-them mentality. That dichotomy, I said last week that the, the, the uh, division between uh, divine and secular was man-made. The boundary between us and them is also man-made. I could talk for hours about how we have reduced Christianity down to outward expressions of piety rather than the subversive movement of vulnerability which preaches that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. But let me just say this, confession requires humility. And getting to humility is half the battle. A lot of our misunderstanding here comes from our, misunder our misunderstanding of the definition of confession. When you hear the word confession, many of us Picture someone going into a little booth and saying, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. But that is one tradition and only one element of that even in that tradition. It's quite evident from Scripture that the exercise of confession is twofold. First, confession is verbally and 
openly agreeing with the reality of who God is and what he has, has done, is doing, and will do in the lives of his people. Before you can get to anything about sin or anything internal, confession is about agreeing with the reality of who God is. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we read, When your people Israel are defeated before an army because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name, and pray and make supplication to you in the temple, then you hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. You cannot begin to talk about specifics until you have first confessed openly who God is. Confessing the name of God is a confession that we are in agreement with him. And it's a confession that we submit to his authority and declare that he can do whatever he wants in our lives. This follows into the New Testament in terms of confessing Jesus Christ, the reality of who he is and submission to his lordship over our lives. Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Again, it is much more than going into a little booth and trying to think of all the bad things you've done in the last week. And it has to start, confession has to start, by acknowledging who God is and what he has done for us. And then we get to the second portion. Confession is also openly and willingly agreeing with the reality of having fallen short in measuring up to the standards that God has set for us. Again, you can't get to the second part without the first part. If you agree about who God is and what he has done for us, then you have no choice but to acknowledge that we have fallen short of the things he's required of us. The Bible is full of clear statements regarding confession of sin, disobedience before God, but here's a couple. When King David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, he states quite simply in, in 2 Samuel eleven six, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He was in agreement with what God had, to, had said through Nathan to him that he had done wrong. First step to admitting you have a problem, or first step to fixing any problem is admitting you have one, right? When the prodigal son came home, his confession is, I have sinned against heaven. But in order to know that confession is what God expects it to be, we must willingly submit ourselves to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And when we fall, when we fail to do so, we place ourselves in one of two categories, or, or in both. One, self-condemnation, feeling things about guilt, feeling like we're less than, or glossing over the truly evil things in our lives that demand our attention and call for true repentance. And I want to pause here for a minute because the inclination when we hear about sin and confession of sin is we usually tend to focus on that second thing, glossing over the things we've done wrong in our lives. But more and more, we fall into the first camp where we acknowledge it, but we don't feel free to discuss it or address it. And so instead, we feel less than. We feel guilt. 
We let it eat at us. Both of these things can be true at the same time. We can gloss over sin and allow it to eat us alive. And so it's imperative then that in order for confession to be made with integrity, that the heart-knowing God, who knows all of this already, be given access. Our minds, our hearts, our wills. We, we willingly accept his assessment or evaluation of the sin in our lives. Again, he knows all of this already, but there is something freeing about allowing him access anyway. And of course, the challenge of confession is not limited to the evangelical tradition. I picked on evangelicals a little bit this morning. Given the pandemic and the political trauma of this last year and the growing distrust that citizens have toward one another and governments, perhaps we need a national season of self-reflection and confession. Maybe, not maybe, we would all be better for it if we took stock and took time to confess the things that are going wrong. A Canadian season of Lent might be a, a, a big idea, but imagine what Canada would look like if we took a, a fast from partisan media and ceasing to blame others. It might make us mindful of what Vaclav Havel said. The line between good and evil does not run clearly between us and them, but through each person. Corporate confession is important. Canadian Baptists have a long history in, of, of ministry in this country. But one of the greatest witnesses that Canadian Baptists ever had was when we got together in a conference and admitted that years and years ago, while we never ran residential schools, we endorsed them. Churches supported the evil that was residential schools. And about six or seven years ago, Canadian Baptists came together and issued an apology to our indigenous brothers and sisters and said collectively, corporately, we were wrong. And now, today, in our denomination, the Canadian Baptists of Western Canada, the fastest growing segment of church plants is happening on indigenous lands. I'm not saying that apologizing or asking for forgiveness will always have huge earth-shattering events like that, but it will change our own perceptions. There's a need within each one of us to take stock. And it can feel counterintuitive, because I, I just finished saying, you know, don't allow these things to eat at you, but by naming them, by taking stock and naming them and then surrendering them, we can be free of them. It's an outward expression of, of, of Jesus' commandment to remove the log from our own eye. When we do this, I find that people who practice confession freely and willingly and often tend to be the least judgmental people I've ever met. Again, I've had some of these conversations this week with many of you, and I've attempted some of answers that resemble a little bit of what I'm sharing here. But this is ultimately what Lent is about. So whether you observe Lent in the traditional way or not, whether you forego some guilty pleasure or not, whether we 
whether you add some spiritual practice into these 40 or 46 days or not, none of that ultimately matters if it's not in service of the larger point. Easter is coming. We celebrate a risen Christ, and that is happening whether we're ready for it or not. Last year, Easter snuck up on me. It seemed to come out of nowhere. It happens. Resurrection happens whether we're ready for it or not. But we can live resurrected, more full lives if we prepare for it. And so whether we call it by name or not, we are all in need of Lent, of a time to take stock, where we stand and approach the throne of the Almighty and ask for forgiveness. Because if we do that, if we call out our darkness by name and surrender it, then the weight of it can be lifted. After a difficult, heavy year, we could all use some levity. And the way to get there is by surrendering the heavy things, not by pretending they don't exist. If we do that, then Easter no longer catches us by surprise. If we take time and put in the work of being introspective and vulnerable, then when Easter morning comes, we can experience it in full. May it be so. Let's pray together. Oh God, help us to use this season of Lent to examine our attachments and to sense where you invite us to live more simply and deeply. Shine the light of your love into the private corners of our lives where we've acquired so much clutter that it has begun to restrict our freedom. Grant us the strength to free ourselves through your power from appetites and needs that drive us into taking, having, and wanting more than we need or have time for. Teach us that in letting go, we become free rather than deprived, that we become generous rather than covetous, spacious rather than restricted. We offer you our Lenten observance. And today we place our, our feet on the road to Easter and walk the way that you have walked before us. We pray these things in the one who was tempted in the desert for 40 days himself, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in the next six weeks, I invite you to join me. Join me in figuring out the things that are wrong in your life that can be made right. As you leave this place, know that the ever-present mystery that we name God is in your past forgiving you, in your present loving you, and in your future meeting you. May the blessing of the source of life, love, hope, and forgiveness, the word of life and compassion and wisdom, the bread of life, the grace and truth surround, sustain, and surprise you this day and all your days.